Good morning, friends. Today's message is titled, Was Pontius the Pilot for the Flight to Egypt? Yeah, I know, that's a pretty silly title for a message. And yet I've heard it said by young children. I've even seen little kids draw pictures of an airplane with Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus in the back and Pontius the Pilot sitting in the front. Well, let's move on to something a little bit different, but it's going to follow this story. Now, I don't know if this ever happens to you. You're reading your Bible when suddenly a phrase pops out and you kind of go, whoa, where did that come from? Well, that happened to me about three to four or five weeks ago while I was preparing some Christmas messages. While reading Matthew's account of the Christmas story, I noted that he quoted Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, not very many people quote Hosea even today, but it had to do with the flight to Egypt by Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Now, Bible scholars have long wondered uh, at Matthew's use of the text from Hosea because at first glance, it doesn't really seem to have much to do with Jesus. It's all about the children of Israel leaving Egypt and making their way to the promised land. But just as God called them out of Egypt, Matthew appears to be saying that Jesus was also called out of Egypt to return to Israel so that he might provide deliverance from our sins. Now, maybe this will make it a little bit clearer. Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth when the conception of Jesus took place. Then they traveled to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And while there, Herod ordered all the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem to be slaughtered. An angel warns Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. So by night, uh, they fled to Egypt and stayed there until Herod died. And then they returned to Nazareth where Jesus was lived. Now, all of this fulfilled the word of the Lord spoken by Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And those words are recorded in Matthew 2, verse 15. Now, of course, there are many mysteries about all of this. We don't really know how old Jesus was when he went to Egypt. We don't know where they stayed in Egypt. We don't know how long they uh, lived down there. We don't know how old Jesus was when they finally went back home to Nazareth. All we know is that Herod wanted the baby Jesus dead, and he ordered the male babies of Bethlehem put to death. And an angel warned Joseph, who took Mary and Jesus and fled to Egypt. Now, sometime later, after Herod died, an angel told them that it was safe to return. But when he heard that Herod's son was reigning in his father's place, he took Mary and Jesus and returned to Nazareth. And again, all of this just fulfills Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, because we know so little about their time in Egypt, there is much speculation. But as I began to do a little study on this text, I ran across an intriguing sentence in one commentary. This was the sentence. Cross-handed providences often bring our greatest mercies. Now, I'll be honest with you, I have never seen the phrase cross-handed before and didn't know exactly what it meant. Now, what exactly is a cross-handed providence? And how do they bring us great mercies? And what does that have to do with the flight to Egypt? And Now, all I can suggest is this, that when God brings forth good, evil is sure to oppose it. When God permits wicked and, ty- and, and that God permits wicked and ty- wicked people, tyrants to be supreme for a time, that cross-headed providences often bring great mercies, and that while self is always in a hurry to display itself, real greatness is content to wait its time. 
Now, a couple of points to be made here. Point number one is Herod's attempt to kill Jesus and his unconscionable slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem. Now, whenever God does anything good in the world, the devil puts his demon suit on and stirs up men like Herod to do dastardly deeds. Now, point two is pretty obvious in that wicked men like Herod come to power by God's permission. He allows them to rise to power. He does not always stand in their way. He does not always stop their acts of evil. And for some people, this poses an enormous problem because we can all see that wrongdoers not only prosper, sometimes they prosper in the midst of their bloodthirsty activities. So it's a great mystery why God permits evil men to do evil, hurting other people in the process, apparently unchecked. Now, I say apparently, not as a throwaway, but as a profound theological truth. Things are rarely what they seem to be. No one gets away with sin forever. Let's go back to the Old Testament again very quick. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, There is a road that seems right to a man, but the roads of evil lead only to death. Your sin finds you out in the end. So Herod died eventually, and then he faced his creator. Now, I'm going to skip point three just for a moment and just jump to point four, because this kind of applies to Jesus only indirectly in that as a, as a baby, he had no say in where his parents took him. But the larger point applies to all of us very directly. The path of life takes many unexpected zigs and zags, and we all find ourselves often running away to Egypt for safety from time to time. And when you stop and think about it for a moment, Egypt occupies a very singular position towards Israel. After all, it was often the shelter of Abraham's family. I mean, Abraham himself went there when there was a famine in his land. To Egypt, Joseph was taken that he might escape from the death intended for him by his envious brothers, and he became the foster father of the house of Israel. I mean, into, into Egypt, as we all right well know, went the whole family of Jacob, and there they lived in a strange land. And there Moses acquired the learning which was so useful to him. And also remember that while God sometimes sends his children to Egypt to protect them, he also delivers them from Egypt later. So Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt in the great passage through the Red Sea. Now, we need Egypt for protection, but we're never meant to stay there. So it does no good to rush the Lord or complain when things happen slowly or when the plans of life suddenly are overturned. By faith, we go down to Egypt in the middle of the night, knowing that one day, by faith, we will come out of Egypt. Now, both the going and the coming are always part of God's plan for us. Well, let's jump back to point three. Cross-handed providences often bring our greatest mercies. It's kind of like this. The ways of God rarely make sense to us in moments of great crisis. Now, did Mary wonder about God's plan when she suddenly had to take her baby across the Sinai Desert to Egypt? Did Joseph and Mary discuss it together? And we don't know, but we know that Mary was a deep thinker who, according to Luke 2.19, pondered things in her heart. Now, I said earlier that I had never heard the phrase cross-handed before. You know, so I Googled it, which is what everybody does, and I discovered it's a golfing term. And the minute I saw that, I thought, okay, I know exactly what that means because it's a certain way of gripping the putter. Now, the golfing image is somewhat helpful because it suggests a situation in life where the normal lines are somehow all crossed up. In other words, nothing is what you expect it to be. Sometimes life can be very cross-handed. 
Now, this applied to uh, Herod in many ways. Now, first of all, he was shocked when the Magi showed up in Jerusalem looking for one born king of the Jews. This was a direct challenge to his authority. Uh, second, he was shocked when the scribes immediately knew that, according to Micah 5, 2, the baby was to be born in Bethlehem. And third, uh, then he tried to cover up for his evil intentions by playing nice with the wise men, asking them to let him know where they found the baby so that he could come and worship. And fourth, he got thrown for another cross-handed loop when the angel warned the wise men to return home by another route. And fifth, then this sick, evil tyrant hatched a monstrous plot to murder all the baby boys two years old and under in the Bethlehem region. Now, you would be hard-pressed to find something more sinister than this. But in a strange cross-handed providence of God, an angel warns Joseph to take Mary and the child and flee to Egypt. But there is yet one more twist to this story that we should notice. If you actually go back to the book of Hosea, and I'd suggest you do read it sometime. It's an interesting book. But go back to chapter 11 and examine the context. You discover that God is declaring his love for the people of Israel in spite of their sin. Now, you get both sides of the picture in verses 1 through 4. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called the more they went away. You can underline that phrase. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Now, you see, like a father who can't give up on his own kids, the Lord continually reaches out to his own people and says, I am bound to you forever with cords of love. And even though the Jews turned away from God and said, you know, we prefer idols. Now, the Lord disciplined them, but he never utterly cast them away. Even though they paid a heavy price for their disobedience, God never gave up on them in spite of their repeated failure. When God says, out of Egypt, I called my son in verse one, he's thinking of the nation as a whole. It is because God regarded Israel as my son that the next phrase stings so deeply when it says the more they were called, the more they went away. You see, friends, it seems that the kinder God was, the more the people rebelled and the more God showed his love, the more they turned away. The more God answered their prayers, the more they said, we don't need you. Now, friends, nothing tests our faith like a loved one who rejects our love. And I would suggest that your response when rejected tells a lot about your theology. It's here we need to be reminded that an astounding miracle lies at the heart of our faith. We believe something absolutely incredible, that a man who was dead came back to life on the third day. We believe that God raised him from the dead. Now, if God would do that for his son, indeed, if God has the power to raise the dead... Who are we to question God's power to change even the hardest of hearts? We must therefore start with God who can raise the dead, not with the person who's spiritually dead. If it is God alone who can raise the dead, then our focus must be on God alone. Now, this is where the message of Hosea 11 becomes so relevant. God had worked a mighty miracle when he delivered his people from Egypt. And how did they express their gratitude to him? They made a golden calf. 
And the more he called out to them, the more they turned away. It was as if they decided, we're going to go see how far we can run away from God. And friends, run they did, chasing after idols of their own making. So, what did God do? Well, he loved them anyway. He never gave up on them. He would not let them go. Hosea chapter 11 verse 8 says, Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. Maybe you know the hymn, um, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. Well, the last verse contains a little line that goes like this. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Like chain my heart to your heart, Lord. See, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that causes us to weep. It's in his, his readiness to forgive that blows us away. That's the kind of God he is. He never gives up on us, even when we give up on him. And that's kind of the message of Hosea 11. You are my beloved children. You're part of my family. I called you out of Egypt. I gave you every blessing. And still you turned away from me. Your disobedience has caused you to suffer, but I still love you. I will not let you go. You are still my children, even when you disappoint me. Now, who wouldn't want a God like that? Who wouldn't want to love a God like that? I want you to listen again to Micah chapter 7, verse 18. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is a God like you? Well, the answer is, there is no God like the God of heaven. He does not stay angry forever. He delights to show mercy. When God brought his people out of Egypt, they failed miserably and repeatedly, yet he loved them anyway. Now, that's why, 1,500 years later, he brought another son, his one and only son, the virgin-born son from heaven, out of Egypt. That son succeeded where Israel failed. That is God's answer to your failure, to my failure, to our failure. This is God's response to our sin. Not only will he let us go, he sends his son to earth, sends him to Egypt, and then calls him out of Egypt as a kind of divine object lesson to teach us two important truths. One, the greatness of our sin, and two, the magnificence of his grace. Now, it's not as if God sees our failure and then calls out from heaven. Come on, folks, try harder next time. Friends, when you have failed a thousand times, trying harder won't get the job done. This leaves us with a hugely important principle that I'm going to state this way. There is something in God that causes him to provide whatever we need to meet his righteous demands. Let me say that again. There is something in God that causes him to provide whatever we need to reach his righteous demands. Now, that something is his Grace. The word means unmerited favor or undeserved bounty and refers to the fact that God's generosity moves him to give us what we do not deserve and what we could never earn. It literally means that he gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve, which is eternal punishment in hell. Now, here is the whole gospel in three simple statements. God said, do this. We said, we can't. And God said, all right, I'll do it for you. See, God demanded perfection. We couldn't meet the standards. So God sends his son, who is perfect, in our place. 
God demands payment for sin. We couldn't make the payment. So God sent his sin who paid the price on our behalf. God demanded righteousness, and all we had was a bunch of soiled self-righteousness and filthy rags. So God sent his son who took our sins so that we might be clothed with his perfect righteousness. God demanded a scapegoat that would be rejected and sent away. When Jesus died bearing our sins, the father turned his back on his own beloved son so that Jesus even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God demanded a bloody sacrifice for sin, but we couldn't meet that demand. So he sent his son to die in our place, shedding his blood, paying the price, bearing our burden, offering himself as the final sacrifice for our sin. Now, in this, we see the glory of the gospel. God says, you must. We say, we can't. God said, I will. And then he sent his son from heaven to earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is why the Bible repeatedly declares salvation is of the Lord. You see, everything starts with God. Salvation doesn't start on earth and rise up to heaven. It starts in heaven and comes down to earth. God makes the first move. That is why the most famous verse in the Bible begins this way, for God so loved. That's John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Friends, you will never understand why Jesus came until you grasp the meaning of these words. Jesus is God's gift to the human race. Entirely undeserved, a gift given in spite of our sin. A gift many would despise and reject. A gift that would be brutal, that would be brutally crucified. But even his crucifixion was part of the gift from God. In his death, he gave us eternal life. Now, we can expand this thought in many directions. God knew we were dead in our sins, so he sent Jesus to give us life. He knew we were his enemies, so he sent Jesus to make us his friends. He knew we were like orphans, so he sent Jesus to bring us into his family. He knew we had no hope, so he sent Jesus to give us a home in heaven. <clears throat> he knew we were poor, so he sent Jesus to make us rich. He knew we were in slavery, so he sent Jesus to set us free. He knew we were afraid to die, so he sends Jesus to die and then raises him from the dead. He knew we had nothing, so he gave us all things in Jesus. What he demanded from us, he gave to us. What we needed, he provided. That is why God called his son out of Egypt. It is an amazing cross-handed providence of God that brings a river of mercy that flows from heaven to earth. When we ran away, he ran after us. When we wanted nothing to do with him, he chased us. When we said, get away from me, he said, I love you too much to let you go. So what do we do, friends? I'll tell you, we need to marvel at the kindness of God, whose love goes farther than our love would ever go. And let us weep with sorrow over our sins, and let us rejoice then that Jesus came out of Egypt to be our Redeemer. What a God. What a Savior. Glory to his name forever. And may our hearts be filled with joy and wonder and overflowing faith, not only at Christmas and Epiphany, but always. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless. Talk to you soon.